Hi, everyone. This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. For many of us, the entire COVID-19 pandemic has felt like it is occurring at warp speed. The spread of the virus, the economic fallout, the chaotic, insane Twitter discourse, the rapidly evolving nature of evidence-based treatment. It feels like a blur. When it comes to COVID, the days may be long, but the weeks go by quickly. And here we are, months into this pandemic, and keeping up with the literature still feels like we're drinking from a fire hose of new information. So this seemed like the right time to pause and gather our thoughts in order to present a basic guide to treating patients infected with SARS-CoV-2 who are sick enough to come to medical attention. I'm Dr. Greg Katz. I'm a cardiologist by training and a past core IM contributor in the cardiac realm. But during the pandemic, I've become a COVID doctor by necessity, which makes me just like everyone else on Twitter, an experienced non-expert on SARS-CoV-2. And this is Dr. Marty Freed, leaving the protected cocoon of five pearls with Dr. Shreya Trivedi to join Greg for this really important update on how we're treating patients with COVID-19. So I had the chance to sit down and chat with Dr. Laura Evans about an approach to taking care of COVID patients. Dr. Evans is the Medical Director of Critical Care and an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington. She's been both on the ground taking care of COVID patients in Seattle and New York, but also integral in developing systematic hospital protocols for treating these patients. She is also the former Director of Critical Care at Bellevue Hospital, where she was in charge of the Ebola response in 2015. So she's probably the closest thing that there is to an expert on treating a new disease during a pandemic. So when COVID first started appearing on our wards and intensive care units, we quickly realized that the sick patients were dying from ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And you might remember the controversy about patients with happy hypoxia and weirdly high compliance. So we asked Dr. Evans, what is so different about ARDS in these patients with COVID-19? Are we really seeing that this behaves differently than the other clinical syndrome of ARDS? Or is it just that there's so many of these patients at the same time that all of these subtle phenotypic differences that normally we just chalk up to, well, this is just an odd case, make us think that there's signal that this is a fundamentally a different disorder. Right. So as these reports come out about clots and myocarditis and the strange pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome, a natural question arises. Is COVID the weirdest disease of all time? I mean, is it not? So I don't think so. I think it's not the weirdest disease. We're just seeing a ton of minor individual variation. Think about it. If all you saw was TB, you'd begin to recognize a million different phenotypes. Same with coronary disease, or really anything for that matter. So COVID isn't a zebra. It's just the biggest herd of horses that the modern world has ever seen. The biggest herd of horses the modern world has ever seen. Classic, Dr. Katz. So today, we're going to dive deeper into what we know about this viral herd. We're going to start with drawing on Dr. Evans' experience in treating a disease that no one has ever seen before. Then we'll discuss supportive care and oxygenation, and then we're going to turn our attention towards clots and what should we be doing about anticoagulating these patients. And you've heard about remdesivir, convalescent plasma, and 
of course, hydroxychloroquine. So what is the evidence basis behind these medical therapies? And we'll finish with what happens after you've recovered from this infection. What do we know about the post-COVID syndrome and recovery from being sick in the intensive care unit? Once testing is confirmed, a diagnosis of COVID, we get into the real work of taking care of these patients. Where do you begin? What's the first step to taking care of patients who are dying from a disease that you've never seen before? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because I don't think it's actually that different than what we do every day. I would say kind of the theme of it was be calm and kind of stick to the basics. We know how to take care of patients. And we know how to treat blood pressure. We know how to evaluate kidney failure if it's present. We know how to do these things. And so kind of hinging on the basic skills that we learn through school and through training and, you know, as obviously as we go through our careers and continue to learn to kind of stick to the basics. Critical care doctors have been the backbone of our hospitals during this pandemic. And what I've learned from talking to a lot of really good ones is that high quality critical care is much more about understanding physiology and following checklists than the miraculous save of a crashing patient. So what are the basics of supportive care in these patients? What exactly should we be doing with them? When you look back over critical care over the last couple of decades, we've gotten better at taking care of patients. Outcomes are better. And it's predominantly through improving supportive care and improving the way we take care of patients rather than through specific therapeutics. So, you know, we mobilize patients now much more aggressively. We take out unnecessary central lines to avoid hospital-acquired infections. We use lung protective ventilation for ARDS, and those aren't specific treatments. They're not a specific drug, but they all result in better patient care. Sticking to these fundamental principles of how do you take good care of patients is probably the best approach to an unknown situation. And I don't think COVID is that different. Certainly, I think it's an unusual virus in some of the manifestations. And I think they did, you know, some of the early data that came out was helpful in terms of setting some expectations about what these patients might look like. From that, And then kind of sticking to the basics again, going back to, okay, the first thing we want to do is just support them, support organ function, don't hurt them, uh, and go from there. To go back to our analogy from before, any herd of horses will have some outliers or groups of outliers. You've probably heard the reports of myocarditis and circulatory collapse. There is definitely a COVID-related glomerulopathy. But whether a patient has COVID-induced ARDS or COVID-induced fulminant myocarditis, you still need to go back to the basics and treat the underlying pathophysiology. In ARDS, that means low tidal volume ventilation. And in cardiogenic shock, it means supporting the hemodynamics. One of the art forms that you learn is when to not just stand there, do something, and when to not just do something, stand there. And that's one of the key things that we hope to learn during our medical training is to evaluate the urgency to not lose that sense of critical thinking and judgment and apply all the skills that we've learned along the way. The toolkit that we have developed during our medical training provides us all with the skills to rise to the occasion to take care of these patients. So in addition to the basics, let's get into the other things that we can use, starting with the support of oxygenation. So similar to other pulmonary diseases, we approach oxygenation in patients with COVID with a step-up approach. 
You know this algorithm from nasal cannula through non-invasive ventilation and intubation. But what have we learned about each modality in the treatment of COVID patients over the last eight or nine months? Step up approach. I love it. Before we even get into extra oxygen, let's start first with proning, also known as adult tummy time. (laughs) What is the point of proning? We've been doing it, obviously, in intubated ARDS patients for a while. Um, but the use of doing it, you know, pre-mechanical ventilation in, in um, awake patients, I think, is an interesting concept. The benefit is, you know, obviously potential improvement in oxygenation through better VQ matching. For those of you who haven't thought about pulmonary physiology in a while, VQ mismatch is when you have an area of the lungs that is getting gas exchange but doesn't have perfusion, or vice versa. And there are actually several other benefits of proning that I definitely wasn't as familiar with, and they don't get as much airplay as matching all those Vs with all those Qs. One of these is sort of obvious, but turns out to be a big player, and that's recruiting dependent lung segments. So it turns out that you have more alveoli in the back of your lungs than you do in the front of your lungs. And so when you're laying supine, all of those posterior lung segment alveoli, they get squashed. And the anterior lungs, which have less alveoli, they get less squashed. This is obviously a problem. But if you prone someone, you flip that and you squash the area of lungs with less alveoli. You decompress the posterior segments with greater alveoli. And the end result is that more alveoli are open for business of gas exchange. This is an everybody wins situation. And... Not to get too deep into the weeds, but there are also hemodynamic benefits as well as better drainage of secretions with proning. But the bottom line is that prone patients feel better. That's kind of what we want to do, right? So I think if, if I'm a patient, I'd like to feel better. And so if turning over and laying on my stomach helps me feel better, I'd be willing to try that for sure. Agreed. All right. The next step up is supplemental nasal cannula and face mask, both of which are fairly self-explanatory. You give patients a little bit extra oxygen when they become hypoxic. So I don't think we actually need to dwell on that for too long. Next up on our respiratory support list is high-flow nasal cannula. This is a lot of oxygen with just a bit of positive pressure. Kind of like if LaCroix had a positive pressure flavor. (laughs) Sounds uh, delicious and refreshing. And then next is non-invasive ventilation, which was actually cautioned against at the beginning of the pandemic you know, initially predominantly because of infection control concerns and also some concern about delaying intubation and what the impacts were on patient outcomes from if, um, if you delay intubation mechanical ventilation in somebody who goes on to need it. Um, people were really hesitant to use non-invasive ventilation. So back in March, we were all intubating everyone once they hit six liters of supplemental oxygen for two major reasons. First, we thought that pressurized ventilation was basically spraying coronavirus everywhere. And two, we were really worried about missing the opportunity to quickly intubate a patient who was crashing. But our approach to non-invasive ventilation has changed considerably since the beginning of the pandemic. We can demonstrated now that we, prob- we can do this safely from an infection prevention and control standpoint. So we also learned that A, with appropriate personal protective equipment, our healthcare workers' risk was actually very low even with that BiPAP-induced COVID bath that we're all taking. But B, even more importantly, these patients can actually tolerate a fair amount of hypoxemia. 
We have patients self-prone with supplemental oxygen or high-flow nasal cannula, or we can use non-invasive ventilation, and it turns out that delaying intubation does not have this deleterious effect that we initially thought. In retrospect, that makes a ton of sense. Every intervention has risks and has benefits, and putting someone on a ventilator doesn't just mean respiratory support. It also means sedation, immobilization, and infection risk. There's no free lunch in medicine, and intubation is no different. One of the things that's really challenging is the duration of respiratory failure in this population is really long. Once they're intubated, they stay intubated for a really long time. You know, the average duration of mechanical ventilation is probably closer to seven to 10 days with a really long tail. And we've all seen you know, reports of people being on the ventilator for weeks. Which means that if we can avoid intubation, we should. And just to point out, we can make the final step up to extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, also known as ECMO. If, of course, your medical center has the capability and your patient is a good candidate, this is one of the highest risk interventions we can offer. So it is vital to choose patients carefully. All right, Greg, let's sum up this respiratory support section. Okay, so support oxygenation, but tolerate permissive hypoxemia if you can keep the saturation in the high 80s. The tools that we have at our disposal include self-proning, supplemental oxygen, high-flow nasal cannula, and non-invasive ventilation all before we are forced to intubate a patient. But once our patients get intubated, they can stay intubated for a really long time. So we need to modulate expectations of getting off the vent quickly. And while we're trying to do a whole lot of not intubating, meaning supporting oxygenation with all the stuff that Greg just mentioned, we are getting a lot of data on these patients. Oh, so much data. Many of us are trending daily CRPs, ESRs, ferritins, troponin, LDH, D-dimer. Some people are checking interleukin levels. But what do we actually need to be following? And does this data collection provide us with any real clinical clarity? So I'm going to be honest, I don't know what to do with all those labs. I don't know what to do with their daily ferritin. I don't know what to do with their daily D-dimers. I don't check them. They're already really sick. So how much prognostic value does a really elevated ferritin add? I think that's uncertain. We still get a lot of labs in the ICU. I'm not going to pretend that I don't get a lot of labs. Um, <laughs> we're you're an ICU to, doctor. You order a lot of we, labs. Yeah, we, you're, it's I'm okay. used it's to okay. a very robust data stream from labs. Um, but... Uh, I'm not ordering labs differently in a patient with COVID-19 than I am with another ICU patient. I'm trying to use the same kind of clinical thresholds from that. Will this approach turn out to be wrong because some, that trending, the CRP, makes an enormous Im clinical impact on these patients? I'm certainly willing to learn that. Well, Marty, I think we found your zebra, a COVID expert who is willing to admit that they might be wrong. Damn. So- I don't know what to do with any of these labs either. And this is a good lesson for the way that we take care of all of our patients. If you don't know what you're looking for with a test, it's probably not that great of an idea to order it in the first place. But a question about daily D-dimer easily segues into a discussion about thromboembolic disease. The questions surrounding clots and anticoagulation in COVID just won't go away. The question of are these patients truly more hypercoagulable than other sick patients remains unanswered. 
you know, certainly the experience in places like New York City, where you had overwhelming numbers of really sick patients who get thromboembolic disease, or if it was truly that this represents an increased incidence that's unique to the pathophysiology of, you know, SARS-CoV-2. Right. We know critically ill people can get clots. The question is whether COVID patients with ARDS are more thrombogenic than patients with other etiologies of ARDS. There just isn't really evidence to support this. But what do we know about the clot risk that is being observed? Mount Sinai published data in JAK showing an association between full-dose anticoagulation and improved survival in hospitalized patients. Now, it was a retrospective observational study. The authors looked at anticoagulating patients with COVID infection, and they showed that patients on mechanical ventilation who received full-dose anticoagulation actually had a lower risk of death. And we've seen some hospitals who have instituted protocols where all COVID patients or all intubated COVID patients receive full-dose anticoagulation. Some places have specific D-dimer cutoffs that lead to initiating full-dose anticoagulation. I don't know if this was the right call or not, but I'm sure that we can absolutely learn from these clinical experiences. So I think you can develop an institutional program, and then you can study that. It may not be an RCT, but you can certainly study that. I think the Sinai report got a lot of press. I think there's probably a lot of other confounding factors that may play into that particular observation around that patients who received anticoagulation who were mechanically ventilated um, had higher rates of survival than those who did not. To me, it's a hypothesis-generating study, not a practice-changing study. As all observational studies hopefully are, hypothesis generating, but not practice changing. Yeah, hard cosine there. All right, how should we approach anticoagulation in these patients? I think just being clinically vigilant that people who are really sick and hospitalized and laying in bed because they're really short of breath have risks for venous thromboembolic disease and you know, using appropriate Um, prophylaxis for venous thromboembolic disease is important. And I think maintaining sort of clinical vigilance that they could indeed develop a DVT or a PE kind of makes the most sense logically to me as an approach rather than anticoagulating kind of across the board. So what Dr. Evans is advocating here is thinking about the manifestations of a clot and watching out for them. Unilateral lower extremity edema should prompt consideration of a DVT. New hypoxia with tachycardia and a right axis deviation on your ECG should make you consider a PE. However, the full story on anticoagulation and thromboembolic disease in COVID has yet to be written. All right, so what I'm taking away about anticoagulation is this. First, critically ill patients can develop thromboembolic disease regardless of the etiology of their critical illness. Two, thromboembolic prophylaxis is appropriate, just like in any other hospitalized patient. And finally, looking for a clot when there's clinical suspicion for a clot probably makes more sense than just anticoagulating everybody. Let's switch gears and talk about steroids. The recovery trial definitely changed the game for us in terms of of, um, use of steroids for these patients. So Dr. Evans here is referring to the European trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in July 2020. This was the first very high-quality study to finally show a clinically meaningful benefit, that patients with COVID on ventilators had a mortality benefit with dexamethasone, and a fairly impressive one at that. The magnitude of effect in the recovery trial, particularly on patients with the, you know, um, 
higher severity of illness is huge. And it's bigger than what we've seen with steroids in basically anything else. So I, I have to admit, like this Laura's opinion, I personally have a little bit of skepticism that the magnitude of effect is as big as it's reported in that trial, just because we haven't seen that. We've studied corticosteroids and critical illness for a really long time. Um, and there is some positive signal there, but it's not of the same magnitude that we're seeing uh, reported from the recovery trial. I hope it's that big. That would be awesome. Okay. So steroids are awesome. And to be clear, the magnitude of benefits seen in the recovery trial is massive. They saw a number needed to treat of eight in critically ill intubated patients with COVID. They saw a number needed to treat of 30 for non-intubated patients. Any number needed to treat less than 10 is super rare in what we do. So it's always appropriate to see numbers like that and start with skepticism. But steroids seem to be the real deal in severe COVID. These results have been replicated in subsequent trials, and they've been published collectively in a meta-analysis in JAMA. All right. So who should get steroids? How much should they get? And how long should the steroid treatment last? The signal of benefit in, albeit in subgroup analysis, is in patients who are requiring oxygen with bigger signal of benefit in those who are more severely ill. So those who are mechanically ventilated, those who are on ECMO, uh, those who are on high flow oxygen or or non-invasive ventilation. So I don't think there's a reason to withhold steroids in somebody who's hospitalized on oxygen uh, with COVID pneumonia. And this makes pathophysiologic sense. ARDS and COVID seems to be related to our immune response to the virus, that cytokine storm. So tamping down on that with steroids seems to improve outcomes for the sickest COVID patients. We know we're using kind of the, the recovery trial dosing range of six, six of dexamethasone or the equivalent in another corticosteroid uh, daily for up to 10 days as long as they're still in the hospital. It's very likely to be a dose that's safe um, without serious major adverse events from it. So I think that's, that gives you some comfort that even if it's, if it's not the perfect dose, what, what we know from the trial, that it at least appears to be safe for patients. If they're great and go, ready to go home, I would stop the steroids. I don't necessarily know that they need to go home on oral steroids to complete 10 days of therapy from it. So bottom line, patients who are sick with COVID-19 should almost certainly be on steroids. Greg, what else do we have in our arsenal of therapeutics? After steroids, the other drug that's been shown to have benefit in COVID patients is remdesivir, an RNA polymerase inhibitor that targets viral replication. Yeah, I think remdesivir you know, definitely has some signal there. It, it does not appear to be a miracle drug um, for these patients. No, that's hydroxychloroquine. That's the miracle drug. <laughs> the ACT study wasn't necessarily designed to answer all these specific subgroup questions. The primary outcome of you know, improved time to recovery is a good outcome, but it's, it's not a mortality outcome. The signal appears to be more pronounced in terms of less severe disease. And mechanistically, that kind of makes sense to me in the sense that if you use the analogy of influenza and oseltamivir, is the clinical response to oseltamivir is better when given earlier in the course of influenza illness rather than later in the course. Since early illness is caused by direct viral effects, it makes sense that a drug like remdesivir, which blocks viral replication, should theoretically have more benefit early on than it will later. On the other hand, since late manifestations are caused by the immune response to the virus, a drug that tamps down on the immune system, like dexamethasone, might work better later. 
I think the recommendation to prioritize um, folks who are hospitalized on oxygen over folks who are on mechanical ventilation or ECMO is really appropriate because even though it's a subgroup analysis, that's where the signal is more prominent. So the takeaway is remdesivir is given early for the less sick. Five days of treatment is probably just as good as 10. And then dexamethasone late for sicker patients on supplemental oxygen. Changing gears. There has been a lot of debate, if that's what you want to euphemistically call it, in the popular press about the effects of an old malaria medicine called hydroxychloroquine. I asked Dr. Evans about her thoughts here. Do you see any role for hydroxychloroquine? I don't. All right. Case closed. Enough said. If you take nothing else from this podcast, please, please remember, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work in COVID. There's been, you know, what, five RCTs now of hydroxychloroquine and looking for- If you keep doing them, eventually one will be positive, right? (laughs) Looking for the niche that it works, right? It it doesn't seem to work for PrEP. Doesn't seem to work for PEP. Dr. Evans is talking about pre- and post-exposure prophylaxis here, just like what we do with tenofovir emtricitabine for HIV. It doesn't seem to impact mild to moderate disease. It doesn't seem to impact severe disease. I, I think we would, you know, we would all love it if hydroxychloroquine worked. Yeah, it would be wonderful. That would be great. I think the reality is, is that it doesn't. So next time your neighbor asks you, hydroxychloroquine is just not the miracle drug that some people would want us to believe. It's not even a drug that seems to work on the margins. But the nice thing about this medicine is that we have good clinical trial data. But enough about that. What about other immunomodulatory treatments? We've had low-quality or neutral data on colchicine. Tocilizumab is another one. That's the IL-6 inhibitor. We've heard about inhaled interferons. We've heard about the anti-IL-1 treatments. What is the role of any of these therapies? The immunomodulatory treatment, with the exception of corticosteroids, I don't think there's a role for them at this time outside of a clinical trial. The preliminary press release stuff about the IL-6 inhibitor trials are that there's no no signal there of benefit. So I'm, I'm not sure that certainly on a population basis with everybody with severe COVID that there's signal of benefit there. Is there any patient that would benefit from it? I think I'd be hard-pressed to say I'm going to do this in anybody outside of a clinical trial right now. But you're saying there's a chance. Yep, Marty. Absolutely. There is always a chance that the p-value will be less than 0.05. Let's move on. What's next? All right, Greg, we need to cover convalescent plasma. Convalescent plasma has gotten so much attention. This treatment means you take blood from a patient who has survived a COVID infection and you give their plasma, which is blood minus blood cells, to somebody with an active COVID infection. This provides theoretical antibody protection. Convalescent plasma has been a historical treatment of pandemics in the past, without evidence demonstrating either benefit or safety, I might add. But this treatment has been used in the 1918 flu pandemic. We've used it to treat patients with Ebola. And now over 70,000 patients in America have received this treatment for COVID-19. And despite this insane amount of convalescent plasma that we're now throwing around, it's sort of hilarious when you consider that we have zero randomized control trials showing benefit in patients with COVID. The convalescent plasma, I think, is really interesting. You know, there is potentially some benefit there, maybe. I'm hoping that people are collecting really good data on that. 
to know so we can get an answer from that. I mean, clearly plasma transfusion is not risk-free either, whether you're talking about transfusion reactions, taco, trolley. So you know, transfusing plasma is not intrinsically a no-risk prospect, but I think there's some potential benefit from it. I think, again, if you're talking about the timing of plasma, my inclination would be it's probably more likely if give, to benefit if given early for the antibody response when the patient still has higher viral viral loads rather than once they're very, very, very ill in the ICU, potentially just from the inflammatory sequela rather than from the sort of direct viral um, invasion of the cells. And a shout out to one of our reviewers, Dr. Nick Mark, who pointed out that the only disease that convalescent plasma has worked on is Argentine hemorrhagic fever, which is a little upsetting because I have been telling all of my friends who conquered COVID that after they get better, they now have an obligation to donate plasma. So that advice is not really aging well. Well, unless they also are co-infected with Argentine hemorrhagic fever, but definitely (laughs) not for COVID, at least not yet. And just to point out, taking care of a patient isn't just about the new medicines that we use to treat them. We also need to make decisions about what to do with these patients, other medical problems, as well as their home medications. Right. So we learned fairly early on that SARS-CoV-2 enters cells through the ACE2 receptor. And I had patients ask me over and over again if they should continue their ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And you can actually make a biologic plausibility case in either direction. The case for continuing them is that blocking these receptors may actually decrease vial entry into the cell. The case against them is that you upregulate ACE2 receptors when they're blocked, so it's possible that these medications may actually increase viral entry into cells. So at this point, what the heck should we be doing with these medications? The NIH guideline recommendation is to continue them, you know, unless there's a contraindication to do so, so right, unless they're hypotensive, et cetera, but otherwise to continue home meds and, and follow. We have randomized control trial data demonstrating that if your patient is on an ACE or an ARB, continuing these medications in the setting of COVID infection doesn't impact mortality or length of hospitalization. All right, let's bring home this section on medications. Dexamethasone for sicker patients has the largest effect size that we've seen, and remdesivir, the antiviral, seems to help if started quickly in the course of the disease. Despite widespread adoption, we're just not sure if the convalescent plasma juice is worth the squeeze, unless, of course, your patient with COVID also has Argentine hemorrhagic fever. Let's move on to what we should do when these patients have finally survived their long hospital stay. What do we know about the post-COVID syndrome? The data is frankly all over the place and just not that helpful in my eyes. There are reports of somewhere between under 10% and more than 50% of patients who develop long-term, meaning post three months, manifestations in their lungs or elsewhere in their body. And honestly, there are things that matter to my patients beyond the respiratory issues. I have patients who still can't taste chocolate or coffee months after getting COVID. So there is definitely a population of people who are experiencing long-term issues, and we just don't know yet who those are and what that spectrum of issues looks like. I asked Dr. Evans if there was anything that we know about what the post-COVID syndrome looks like or how we should be preparing patients for it. That's um, another one of the great unknowns is what does this look like? We have some good data about long-term outcomes for survivors of ARDS, obviously non-COVID related, it's all precedes COVID. 
and other critical illness syndromes, right? So there's, there's more and more being published about this concept of the post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, um, which shows you that, and I think one, one easy way to summarize it is nobody comes out of the ICU unchanged. Um, and there may be really long lasting effects from it, whether it be the effects of delirium on you know, cognitive and executive function down the road, most of these patients did not have long-term pulmonary consequences from ARDS, but they did have long-term neuromuscular consequences, presumably related to you know, just prolonged ICU stay, neuromuscular failure as a manifestation of multi-organ failure. So will COVID behave the same way? I don't know. I think other than really good general medical follow-up, you know, symptoms assessments, I think a six-minute walk is a great sort of tool for lots of different functional issues in people who survive the ICU. We have covered so much ground here. Supportive care, oxygenation, the miracle of hydroxychloroquine, and what happens to these patients after discharge. Some concluding thoughts from Dr. Evans. I guess I would come back to where we started, which is just to like stay calm, don't lose your ability to think things through critically, Try not to get kind of overwhelmed by this sense of clinical urgency that's driven from uncertainty and to really, you know, come back to the back to those basics of how do I best support this patient if they didn't have COVID and use that as sort of the building block to go from there. So in the past few months, we have all spent countless hours thinking about our patients dying from COVID. With the dizzying pace of new information, it has been so easy to feel like our practice patterns need to make adjustments every time some new trial gets presented. And as doctors, it's always tempting for us to want to play with our new shiny toys, because why shouldn't the novel coronavirus be treated with an arsenal of novel therapeutics? But at the end of the day, we're treating patients who are made sick, incredibly sick, from a respiratory virus. Exactly. And so the concluding message here needs to be, we can do this. We know how to do this. Our medical training has equipped us all with the knowledge and skills to do right by our patients in the biggest public health emergency of our lifetimes. After months of struggling through this pandemic, we've learned the best way to treat COVID is by working as a team and falling back on the fundamentals. And that's a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, please tweet us and leave a comment on our website page or on Instagram or our Facebook page. A huge thank you to Dr. Salim Najjar for the accompanying graphic, as well as always Solon Keller for audio editing. And of course, our peer reviewers, Dr. Abraham Cooper and Nick Mark. As always, we love hearing feedback. You could email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any of our affiliated institutions. Hello, Core I Am podcast fans. This is Mark Shapiro here. I'm a hospitalist and the host of Explore the Space podcast. I'm grateful to the Core I Am podcast team for sharing their mic with me for a moment to talk about the Morning Report initiative with Vote Health 2020. Through my years in medical school, residency, and as an attending, I could count the number of conversations I have had about voting with my fellow medical students, residents, and physician colleagues on one hand. Somehow it's become normal for us to not help mobilize and energize one another around voting. And this has cost us dearly. 
Physicians voted a rate that is 9% less than the general public and 22% less than attorneys. This November 3rd, there is a presidential election, but remember, your ballot will be filled with so much more. State elections, local elections, bond measures. You may be electing your local sheriff or deciding on a measure around carbon offsets in your county. The issues and initiatives that impact our communities and the lives of those we care for are not hearing our voice and feeling our impact. It's time we change that. The process is simple. Check your eligibility to register and get registered to vote. Then, decide if you'd like to vote absentee or mail-in. They mean the same thing. And check the deadlines for your state. If you're scheduled to vote in person, make a voting plan. This is critical for us in medicine. Check your schedule, talk to your teammates, discuss how you'll cover one another to ensure everyone can get to the polling place on election day. Then, cast your ballot. I've chosen to vote absentee this year because I'm working on election day. Take a look at the slide in the show notes for this episode of Core I Am Podcast. It's got everything you need to move through these steps in one place, and it takes just a few minutes. We want to bring this message far and wide. The Morning Report Initiative is here to help do that. If you'd like to have me or another physician on our Vote Health 2020 team join any meeting you've got, we'll be there. Morning Report, Grand Rounds, Team Huddles, you're having a coffee with some pals, anything. Just email info at VoteHealth2020.com to schedule. We'll set up a free, less than five-minute presentation that is nonpartisan and has everything your audience needs to get activated. You can also check out www.VoteHealth2020.com. No excuses this election and going forward, my friends. Thank you so much for all that you do. But you're saying there's a chance. Absolutely, Marty. Sorry, my dog just barked. (laughs) Sorry. All good.